0: Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. I'm Cody Goff, and I will be your host today. Ashley's back next week. Today, you'll learn about how to recognize when you want something just because other people want it too. how to test a witness's memory to reduce wrongful convictions, and that time one of the technicians working on a particle accelerator was a ferret. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Take a second to think about why you want the things you want. Did you follow a path in life because you knew it would bring you happiness and fulfillment, or was it because that was what people told you you wanted? What about the relationships you've pursued? The stuff you've bought? There's a name for the things we want just because others want them. They're called mimetic desires. It can be tough to identify them, but luckily, I've got a few tips for figuring out what you truly want. Now, this idea comes from French thinker René Girard. According to him, after we've met our basic needs, like food and shelter, our desires hit a wall. Without biology to guide us, we look to others to know what we want. We unconsciously imitate family and friends, professional peers, and even celebrities, we pick up on what they want and, in turn, end up wanting the same things. Girard called this mimetic desire. Girard's work focused on philosophical anthropology, which answers the question, what does it mean to be human? There's an author named Luke Burgess who wrote a book about mimetic desire, and it draws from Girard's work. And Burgess says that desire is fundamental to the human experience— He says that everybody wants something unless they're depressed or dead. Philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre believed we're born as blank slates and create ourselves as we go. But Burgess says we're born into a web of relationships that shape and limit our free will. He also has a strategy to sort out genuine versus mimetic desires. Think about them as thick or thin, Thin desires are mimetic and temporary. They leave us unfulfilled because we took them from other people. Looking forward to retirement is a good example. You get ideas from others about when you should retire and how you should spend that time. But then you might find the decision less than satisfying. After all, your ideas really belong to someone else. On the other hand, thick desires connect to our core values and they're everlasting. Spending more time with family is a thick goal. You can start intentionally working toward that desire today, and it'll grow with time. To suss out thicker desires, think of a time you put a lot of effort into something and got a lot of satisfaction and meaning from the experience. Identify what motivated you in those situations. There's no escaping mimetic desires. Humans are social animals, and it's only natural to get ideas from other people. But if you're looking for true fulfillment, it's worth asking yourself, is this desire mine or someone else's? Wrongful convictions are bad. People who are convicted of crimes they didn't commit can suffer years of undeserved imprisonment or worse. Fortunately, psychologists have come up with a technique for reducing the justice system's chances of wrongful conviction. And it's a simple rule based on rigorous research It goes like this. Only ask eyewitnesses to identify the perpetrator one time. For some context, let's go back to 1998. A woman who lives in a Texas suburb notices two men going into her neighbor's house. Several hours later, she's taken to a police station to identify the men who police believe murdered her neighbor shortly after she saw them. She easily identifies the first suspect, but the second man isn't so easy. The witness says he was white with shoulder-length hair, but the police think it's someone else, a Hispanic man with short hair named Charles Don Flores. Hours after the murder, they show the witness a lineup that includes a photo of Flores mixed in with pictures of others who fit his description. She says none of them were the man she saw. But months later, she's asked again, this time in court, and she testifies that Flores was the man. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to death. The psychologists who proposed the only ask witnesses once rule say the reason she changed her mind is likely the product of how investigations and trials are conducted. See, psychological research has shown that memories aren't written in stone. All kinds of things can influence them. For instance, when the witness in the Flores case saw the police lineup, she had to study the faces extra hard to determine if any of them matched the person she'd seen. Even though none of them did, that extra brain processing inadvertently created a new memory record in the process. The next time she was asked to remember what the man looked like, she was able to access that newly formed memory. And that's just one of several reasons researchers say we shouldn't be asking witnesses to recall details more than once. It sounds like a pretty simple change, but it would require the justice system to transform in some pretty significant ways. For example, right now, the most consequential time a witness identifies the suspect isn't the first time. It's the last time when they testify before a judge and jury. But by using lessons from psychology... Maybe we can protect people from wrongful conviction. Maybe even people like Flores, who's still alive, but on death row. Particle accelerators are some of the largest machines on the planet, and they allow scientists to explore the smallest fundamental particles that make up our universe. No big deal. One of them is located at Fermilab, a laboratory in Batavia, Illinois, And their machine has discovered several of these fundamental particles. But it might not have discovered anything if it weren't for a little ferret named Felicia. In 1971, Fermilab was known as the National Accelerator Laboratory. And it was tantalizingly close to bringing their particle accelerator online. The thing is no simple machine, though. It's composed of a narrow vacuum tube that forms a ring four miles, or six and a half kilometers, in diameter. That tube is lined with 774 incredibly powerful electromagnets, and their job is to bend the path of a particle beam so it can make continuous trips around the circle and smash into other beams traveling in the opposite direction. But the magnets kept breaking and needed to be replaced. Well, eventually, freshly replaced magnets finally enabled scientists to fire a beam around the circumference of the main tube. But at that point, they realized they had another problem. When they increased the voltage above a certain point, the magnets shorted out. And it turns out that when they replaced the magnets, they left tiny metal shavings behind. And those shavings were causing all sorts of problems. The scientists needed to come up with an effective solution for cleaning out the vacuum tube, and they needed to do it quickly. And since four-mile-long pipe cleaners don't exist, they enlisted the help of a ferret named Felicia. See, ferrets just love scurrying down tunnels, and a particle accelerator is just one very, very long tunnel. Before the journey, the scientists fitted Felicia with a collar attached to a string— The string was attached to a cloth doused in chemical cleaner that would be pulled through the tube after Felicia exited. Felicia also wore a tiny diaper because as bad as metal shavings are for a particle accelerator, yeah, ferret poop also not super helpful. But when they tried to put Felicia in the main vacuum tube, she refused. I can't say that I blame her. It was a four-mile-long pitch-black tunnel after all. Instead, she was reassigned to shorter, 300-foot sections of tube that were still under construction. And after she swept the tubes clean, they were joined with the main assembly. But Felicia eventually inspired a higher-tech cleaning method. Engineers devised a quote-unquote magnetic ferret that would sweep out the main tube. The method actually worked, and the whole thing is still operational today. Funny to think that one of the most complex machines scientists use can thank a ferret for helping it get where it is today. Let's recap what we learned today, shall we? Starting with the fact that mimetic desires are desires we adopt from other people. That is, the things we want just because others want them. These desires tend to be fleeting and unsatisfying. To really find the desires that are yours and yours alone... Think of a time you put a lot of effort into something and you got a lot of satisfaction and meaning out of it. That can lead you towards the desires that connect to your core values. Just so you know, I have a lot to say about this story. So I'm about to talk for literally five minutes. I'm not exaggerating, literally five minutes. So like fast forward a lot if you want me to recap the other stories. (laughs) I mean, I think everything I'm about to say is fascinating, but uh, maybe that's just me. So, you know, your call. But don't say I didn't warn you. Anyway. I find that a particular type of mindfulness helps with this. Like, for example, there's a restaurant in Chicago called Alinea. It has a Michelin three-star rating, which just over a dozen restaurants in the United States even have. You have to book reservations months in advance, so it's obviously super popular, but I know that for me, I'm pretty happy with a delicious, you know, $12, $14 burger from a local bar and grill. At Alinea, you pretty much can't get away with spending less than $200 per person for a meal. Usually it's closer to three to $400 per person. Seriously. So if I just relied on mimetic desire, I'd be like, oh, wow, some of my friends have gone to Alinea. Oh, it'd be such a cool hot date. I'll bring my wife. It'll be impressive, all that stuff. And, you know, I'm sure for a lot of people, it's worth it. My sister's gone. I have lots of people that have gone. Fantastic. I'm sure the food is on another plane of existence. But I don't have a refined palate, apparently. <laughs> so for me, it's not worth that cost. If you're a foodie, knock yourself out. But I know that any desire to go is entirely mimetic. Now, I do like to try new experiences, but I can do that without spending $700 for my wife and me to eat at a super exclusive place. So pay attention to what you actually like And think about how much you'll enjoy the experience because, you know, that's important. The other place I see this a lot, by the way, I know a lot of people are getting into podcasting, but like I've seen some podcast communities online on like Reddit, Facebook and other places. And it's like the only thing they want and the only thing they're chasing is a bigger audience. Like that's all they want. Like, how do I get more downloads? How do I get more numbers and all that stuff? And it's just like, I've been podcasting for how long have I been podcasting? What year is it? 2022? I've been podcasting for 13, 14 years, more than 10. I've been doing it a long time. And I could tell you, from more than a decade of experience, I have never, ever predominantly cared about how many people have heard my podcast. I'll give you an example. My first podcast was a video game podcast with my buddy John. We got 50 downloads an episode. We might have peaked at 200 downloads an episode. I don't remember. See, I don't even remember. What I do remember is this one time a uh, guy emailed us and he was just like, I'm a huge fan of the show. I listen every week. I look forward to it. It really keeps me company. I want to send you something. And he sent me a video game for Christmas. And it was like, <laughs> like, that's what I remember. I remember not cause I got a video game, but because like I connected with somebody, right? Like I, there was a relationship that was formed predominantly parasocial because he was listening to us, but like, that was a big deal for me, and I talked about it on our December twentieth episode. But I feel the same way doing Curiosity Daily. And one day we had a technical problem and an episode published late, and I wasn't thinking, "Oh, what about the thousands of listeners and the ad revenue that we're losing?" No, my first thought was, "What are Tom and Tamson going to listen to at breakfast?" Because I know a couple of our listeners mentioned they listen to our show at breakfast. That was my first thought. What will they listen to at breakfast? It's those moments where you like connect one-on-one with somebody that matters so much more than numbers. But I think that people see YouTubers or they see like big podcasts and they're like, I just want to, I want a bunch of numbers and all that stuff. And it's just like, that's, is that really going to make you happy? Like if you, if you see like a oh, hundred people listen and I, I don't know who they are or where they're located. I don't have a relationship with them, but like there's this abstract number out there and it's high. Like, will that really make you happy? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'm just a weird person. I'm definitely a weird person. But, but maybe I'm just particularly weird and I, I, I'm missing something. But I think that is massively important in any creative endeavor, whether you're writing or blogging or making YouTube videos. Like, what are you really getting out of it? Are you just trying to like build an audience or are you enjoying what you're doing? Do you enjoy the process of editing and honing your craft, you know? Or do you just want to reach like that one person that you make an impact with? These are important questions that matter a lot to me, obviously, which is why I've been ranting about them for the last several minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't mean to make it sound simple, right? Like I'm actually working on a video interview series once I've got curiosity daily, all wrapped up. I'm going to be hosting these video interviews, you know, follow me on social media. I'll, I'll let you know when I start to launch that. But I've been struggling with like, who do I talk to? Because like, I just spent four years doing a science podcast. Like, do I need to keep talking to science people? Do I want to keep talking to science people? I kind of have a blank slate. I can talk to whoever I want. Do I want to talk to fiction authors about their stories? Do I want to talk to history people about history stuff? You know, I mean, the only thing I've really settled on is that I'm not going to do it on YouTube. I'm going to be doing it on Givio. It's a video hosting website that's going to be launching pretty soon because I'm not a big fan of the YouTube ecosystem. But like, other than where I'm hosting it, I don't know <laughs> what it's going to be about yet. So, uh, you know, stay tuned, but I'm certainly not trying to oversimplify the problem of like, how do I figure out what I actually want? Because like, it's a real problem. And in the full-time realm, like I'm, I'm struggling with that too. Like I want to be a director of podcasts somewhere, or like an executive producer and like help other producers hone their craft. You may not know this about me, but I've done a lot of strategy, work and consulting and planning and that kind of stuff outside of just producing and hosting. Like I, I've done a lot of much higher level stuff behind the scenes. So I, I want that, but I also want to be remote. Because I'm not a big fan of the whole commute thing, hurting the environment, having to travel and, you know, like director or managerial level positions are somewhat less available in remote. So it's like, which one do I really want? You know, I've got to I've got to really examine that. And I know I'm not alone and not totally knowing exactly where I want to take my career. I feel like adulthood is all about just constantly reevaluating what you actually want and checking in with yourself. So good luck. And I hope that this story helped a little bit. Anyway, we also learned that to reduce wrongful convictions, psychologists recommend testing an eyewitness's memory only once. That's because memories are not stable, and they can change after recalling them even one time. Unfortunately, right now, the most important time an eyewitness recalls the identity of a suspect isn't the first time. It's the last time when they testify in court, And that's why this simple change would require some big transformations in the justice system. But on a lighter note, we also learned that in the 1970s, Fermilab cleaned out their particle accelerator with some help from a ferret named Felicia. Ferrets love dark tunnels, and that's really all a particle accelerator is. So the scientists figured they could fit Felicia with a collar attached to a cleaning cloth and send her through. The four-mile tube was too long even for a ferret, but they did have her clean out smaller sections of the machine before they were installed. Eventually, Fermilab started using a magnetic ferret that would sweep out the main tube. And it worked, and the particle accelerator is still going strong today. I just hope Felicia didn't mind too much that her job was essentially taken over by automation. Sometimes, life ain't ferret all. Today's writers were Steffi Drucker, Grants Curran, and Cameron Duke. This episode was produced and edited by me, Cody Goff. Curiosity Daily is distributed by Discovery. After some self-reflection, I'm confident that you'll realize that it is your desire and yours alone to join me again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. Until then, stay curious.